We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. So we're into principle nine, and I think it's the is it the third principle that we've put under the umbrella of, of democracy and subsidiarity. Yeah, and indeed, this really is a definition of subsidiarity. Which yeah. uh, would you like to read it out? So number nine. Central government only undertakes tasks or makes decisions which localities cannot or which require uniform regulation. So that's interesting because there's quite a history to this notion of subsidiarity. And I think it goes back to the Middle Ages with St. Thomas Aquinas. But then there was also a Calvinist legal philosopher called Johannes Althaus, who used the word in 1603. And I would tentatively suggest that it went dormant for a while after that, but it seems to have exploded into use under Pope Pius XI in 1931 in response to, yeah, this is very much uh, with the rise of of new non-feudal politics like National Socialism and Communism and indeed uh, American and Western European capitalist individualism, Pope Pius came out expressly against all of these and pronounced something like this that went, just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, so that's a snipe yeah. at communism, so yeah. also it is an injustice and at the same time a grave evil and disturbance of right order to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate organizations can do. So that is kind of sniping at authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and so on. Yeah. And he finishes up by saying, for every social activity ought of its very nature to furnish help to the members of the body social and never to destroy and absorb them. So that's quite a nice stepping off point for subsidiarity well it's 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 both rights in the sense of freedoms and control over one's life to the maximum extent but i mean it's also about just efficiency and getting things done Hmm. good government and both of those come together very much in this concept well, very much so. And I liked his uh, use of, of uh, what people can accomplish by their own 
initiative and industry. And the more that that governments sort of pull things centrally, and the more that, if you like, we expect government to solve every problem, then the more powerlessness grows. And from powerlessness comes all sorts of consequences, uh, not least things like Brexit and Trump. Well, it's interesting because after our last episode, I posted a video of Stein Ringen's talk. This was on his book, The Economic Impact of Mr. Brown, which was, as he repeatedly says in this talk, absolutely nothing. And his real question is, how is it that such a bright, motivated group of people with such an exceptional political mandate, how is it they managed to achieve so little? And he puts the answer squarely on our system of government, saying that really nobody in our system of government could achieve these kinds of aims. And one of his recommendations relates directly to subsidiarity, because he says uh, we need to reinvent local democracy. As it is, Britain just does not have proper units to devolve power to. So yeah, that's very... a good place for us to kick off today, Ed. Yeah, what do you no, think? Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of, absolutely. And, and interestingly, Stein Riggins' conclusions about all of these programs for inequality that New Labour came up with, that those programs of themselves, actually, at the end of the day, from child poverty to schooling and all the rest of it, had no impact. And as he says, the reason they had no impact was system of government, which is just as Professor Julia Lynch that we talked about last week, looking at the politics of inequality mm-hmm. and her conclusion that no matter what was done around the world, it made little difference because at the end of the day, it's the economic system uh, that's behind it all. And if you're going to change the economic system, then you need to change the political system. And as she said, we need changes to the system of governing. But if you go on from there and, and people would say, well, surely in Britain we have local government. Well, it depends what you mean by local government. Real local government is government of a locality by the people in that area. What we have almost exclusively is our local authorities where as much as 90% of the decisions are taken either by central government diktat, which might be, um, well, literally a diktat in that it's a statute or an instruction, or it might be guidance, which you feel obliged to follow uh, because otherwise you won't get the money. And if it's not from central government, then it's from local officials, because the way in which local government is structured here means that it's hard for councillors to actually control and direct in accordance with the democratic wishes of the locality, hard to direct that council. And you then start to unpick that and you look at the way real local government does operate and it does operate much better in most European countries and and indeed in the United States. Any any particular examples of that? Well, I mean, the the best one recently, if people have seen the Panorama programme on who did best in relation to the pandemic, then the town of 
I think it's 90,000 in southern Germany called Tübingen. Tübingen, mm. yes, came out very well because they recognised very quickly that there would be a major problem with people in care homes and they set up a system of, well, testing and tracking and tracing but also insulating, if you like, and taking care in the interfaces with people in care homes and then the health service support for people who got ill in care homes. All of this was organised locally. Mm. And you then step back from that and you say, well, well, you know, why on earth were they able to do this? The first thing is that they have an executive mayor and I think there's no doubt that experience shows that if you want local accountability, local democracy, then executive mayors are the way to go, rather than these rather loose and amorphous and highly pressed groups of councillors. Mm. So there's an executive mayor. I've voted for him or her. As it happened with Tubingen, it was a guy who had a degree in mathematics which helped him to look at numbers and understand mm. numbers. And it's like, well, you know, if I don't like what is going on in my locality, then, you know, it's very clear the accountability is to the executive mayor, right, I'm going to vote for a different executive mayor. And you can see around the world the way that that has gone and the way change has resulted. So we've got an executive mayor, person with clear authority, who has the power to instruct the local officials as to what to do. Although it's not a sort of autocratic system, but it's mm. it's more of a collegiate system because people there are focused on their local community. And, you know, they know a lot of the local community. Mm. It's not some distant Whitehall thing that's trying to do something to people hundreds of miles away. They know these people and they respond. Secondly, they have the powers to respond, which are taken away in Britain by and large and put in central government. Thirdly, they have the ability to raise funds. Mm. Um, so the amount of tax that comes locally from a German local authority, maybe as much as 16% in the UK, it's 1%. You've got much more transparency about what's going on because it is local and you can see it. The town of Tübingen itself, you know, it's been there for years and years and years. People connect with it, see it as theirs. And other things that you can do in terms of raising money are the capture of location value from mm. uh, developers. You, you also need national equalisation in all of this. So there's this local government there that has gripped this and done a really, really good job. Now, one um, thing that strikes me about what you're saying is that there seems to be a, a numerical limit and I think it seems to touch on something we've talked about, I think, in the last series about how, you know, there seems to be a, a sweet spot where populations of around 5 million have well-functioning democracies. And I wonder, does that the similar principle devolve down to the well-functioning county or, or town authorities? And also, yeah, but... how does that then relate to our 
favorite law, Ashby's law of requisite variety, because there seems oh. to be this sort of level of detail that is found at the local level that yes. is lost when things get too centralized. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come back to Ashby's law in a minute. But taking the first point, yeah, countries, 5 million, 7 million, 10 million, you look around, you know, where is the highest trust in government? Well, you'll find that it's in countries of that size. So, you know, if I just read from the OECD's latest uh, trust in government's Mm. uh, assessment, then you find at the top Switzerland, Norway, Finland, interestingly, India, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Denmark, Sweden, before you get to Germany, and all of those are five, seven, ten million sort of size. And and you'll find in terms of the happiness index and the trust in justice system index, all about that size. New Zealand is another one there as well. That's got a population of five million. It's interesting to reflect on that when people start yapping on about, oh well, you know, mm. we can't possibly uh you know, allow Yorkshire any uh, powers or, or Scotland more powers or Wales more powers. Well, actually, they're sort of similar size to New Zealand and New Zealand seems to get on pretty well. Well, and in fact, so, democracy, devolved democracy seems to be functioning reasonably well in both Scotland and Wales and certainly Ireland, which again is also just under 5 million. Exactly, exactly. So you then say, well, you know, Germany's 80 million. How on earth does that work? Well, there's very clear devolution, first of all, to the, the states, the lander, the regions, mm-hmm. of, of which there are 16. So you divide 80 by 16, and oh my word, that's about 5 million each on average. Mm-hmm. Then they have very clear, it's in the constitution, unlike ours, which says nothing about local government, very clear devolution and powers to the next two levels under the state level. Which are the, um, the land crisis and then the local districts within the towns. There's always this issue within a region. So how do you chop it up? You know, how do you make sense of an area that has a mix of, well, maybe big cities, maybe big towns, maybe quite a lot of small towns in more rural settings? You know, how do you break it up? Well, the answer is there's a sort of mix and match way of doing that. And uh, so... Uh, A city in Germany would have its own local government, but then underneath that there will be a series of town councils, which equally would have executive mayors and powers and funding to get on and do stuff themselves. I mean, just to touch on Scotland for a minute, devolution to Scotland, tick, but there have been issues about, you know, the power then ends up in Holyrood in Edinburgh, and their seat of government, but then how much are the people that have then got the power keen on devolution beyond that? And we find that actually in Scotland there were four police forces, which was a pretty sensible arrangement, I think, mm. which they then amalgamated into a single national police force. So, you know, devolution subsidiarity is something that goes right the way through. It, it doesn't stop once a particular group of people have got hold of some power locally. I mean, the, the idea of subsidiarity is that it starts locally and then is devolved, as it were, or that the power is allowed 
nationally step by step rather than mm. starting centrally and being allowed step by step to go back to the local level and indeed your principle let's, let's go back the central government only undertakes tasks or makes decisions which localities cannot or which require uniform regulation well i mean clearly there are a lot of things that localities can do and potentially should do and those are things that they should have the power to withhold as it were and only allow the central government to to do the things that everybody agrees need to be done yeah yeah and and we use this term subsidiarity you know rather than this devolution or decentralization so the starting point is we have all the power at the center and then we'll allow some power down subsidiarity says no no, no. we have all the power locally and then we will allow through allocating our political authority uh, some of that power to go centrally and so it's it's a very different mindset hmm. and indeed um, richard mccrory former lawyer for friends of the earth and i think certainly at one point emeritus professor of law at ucl mentions in a report regarding environmental law that was done for uh, i think the cameron government he says that there are three main positive effects of a political or economic system governed by the principle of subsidiarity one is, and this is written shortly after the global financial crisis in 2008, he says, uh, systemic failures of the type seen in the crash of 2007-8 can largely be avoided since, and you'll like this, since diverse solutions to common problems avoid common mode failure. So what that says to me is that this is about the sort of diversity across regions acts as, as a sort of break on something running amok, uh, unchecked, like the yeah. global financial system, for example. Well, it, I mean, this is back to our principle of diversity, in, you know, diversity in all things, because if you put all your eggs in one basket and then the basket drops, then all your eggs are uh, broken. But Whereas it, if you have a number of competing notions as to how you handle something, then not all of your eggs are going to get broken. There's still yeah. going to be some left. Um, well, he, he goes on to two more positive aspects to subsidiarity that he says that the second point is that individual and group initiative is given maximum scope to solve problems. And then finally, related to that, the systemic problem of moral hazard is largely avoided. In particular, the vexing problem of atrophied local initiative and responsibility is avoided. So Clearly, atrophied local initiative and responsibility has been a, a plague in Britain, I think, for yeah. decades, the, really. Yeah, and the, the more you take power away from people, the more powerless people feel, the more that you end up in situations, well, take back control, you know, so you end up with the very token attempts to take back control, you know, Brexit and Trump being the most obvious ones. Whereas, actually, we're still in the land of needing to take back control, which is to take back control within reason, the powers that we need to run localities. And it, it's very interesting that if you take, again, going back to Germany, there may well be a law about welfare, for example, and benefits, but that the locality, the local government has the responsibility to administer and operate those benefits. 
So, okay, there you've got a mixture of uniform regulation, but the actual operation of those things, mm. uh, where people are much closer to the people receiving welfare, will know much more as to precise mechanisms that are going to help those people, and indeed will know much better as to who's fiddling the books, mm. that they are operated locally. And I mean, there are things, you know, would we all have local armies? Well, of course, we're not going to have local armies. You know, would we all have local currencies? Well, of course, we're not going to have local currencies. But the sheer scale, the attempts, you referred to Ashby's law earlier on. And the way that Ashby's law is described is as follows. If a system is to be able to deal successfully with the diversity of challenges that its environment produces, then it needs to have a repertoire of responses which is at least as nuanced as the problems thrown up by the environment. So a viable system is one that can handle the variability of its environment, or as Ashby puts it, only variety can absorb variety. Hmm. So if there you are in the centre and you're attempting to run all schools through some system or other with some very rigid curriculum and rigid controls and terms for how those schools run, you're just never going to be able to do it because the tiny top can't actually handle and understand the repertoire of responses, Mm. uh, which is at least as nuanced as the problems thrown up. But I suppose there are challenges to this idea. And the most obvious one would be something like the way the European Union is often characterised when it comes to issues around defence, that there there seems to be a lot of procrastination or there's perceived to be a lot of procrastination and foot dragging. And in fact, um, Richard McCrory has has a few, there are three main cautions that he puts forward about subsidiarity. And I'll read them out. So firstly... When a genuine principle of liberty is recognised by a higher political entity, but not by all subsidiary entities, implementation of that principle can be delayed at the more local level. Secondly, he says, when a genuinely efficacious economic principle is recognised by a higher political entities, not all subsidiary entities, but, but not all subsidiary entities, implementation of that principle can be delayed again at the more local level. And then he says, in areas where local use of common resources has a broad regional or even global impact. Higher levels of authority may have a natural mandate to supersede local authority. I mean, these are listed actually as kind of negative points, but they seem more like cautions to me. Um, Yeah, um, they're simply saying when you apply this principle, well, you know, work it out and do it sensibly. And, And it's worth saying at this point that, of course, if your central government is diverse and is elected through proportional representation, then its decisions are going to be much more balanced and nuanced than if you have our situation Mm. where you have this sort of tiny group of what increasingly seem to be extremist fantasists deciding to peddle their ideology. So if, if you've got the government framework that we've described in our book, which is much more responsive, then the decisions that are sensible about, well, what are we going to do about water nationally or electricity nationally need to be taken nationally. Some of the other objections people come up with are postcode lottery. 
So the postcode lottery says, well, we can't have that. Um, we want everyone everywhere to have exactly the same standard of service that is common throughout the country. And, you know, therefore we need all these central directives. Well, despite all these central directives, there is still immense variety in the standard of public services provided throughout the country, first of all. Secondly, if you think about this, well, actually, often the recipients of public services are individuals with very individual needs and individual requirements. So if we go back to child protection and the podcast we did with Eileen Munro, that actually the child who needs protecting a specific child in Middlesbrough, their circumstances will be different from the child that needs protecting in Surrey. So they need to be different. Mm. There is going to be variety because these services are dealing with individuals. They're not dealing... If they were dealing with individuals who were all the same, then the postcode lottery argument would pertain. There's, I think, an even more powerful argument against uh, we must have them all the same, which is that for an awful lot of these issues... You know, the answers are not simple. The answers are often immensely complex, and we're still working on many of those answers. You know, how do you get the best health service, the best, fairest welfare system, the best school service, etc., etc., etc.? Well, if you have competing solutions, which in a way we've seen with the pandemic, where Wales, Scotland, and England have had different rules. But also we've seen that internationally, of course. If you have competing solutions, then we'll find that, oh, this one is actually working a lot better than that one. If you simply go... Well, that's against- interesting because I think we've seen that a bit in, in Germany. You were talking about how, well, previous to, to starting today's episode, we were talking about how most of the German states have adopted the, I think, the Bavarian model for, for how they run their... The state governments. The the German model, yeah. But that element of different, relatively local authorities, as it were, being able to forge their own path, look at what the others are doing and make adjustments to improve as they see different people doing different things, I think is is clearly quite a good model. Also kind of relating to, to to your idea of the global learning engine, that people can learn do things yeah. better yeah. by looking at each other and by experimenting themselves. Yeah, so there we are in Germany. How local government is structured is down to the state, the, the region, the lander, and they will set their constitution for how that is to be done. Immense variety. Some of it looks, um, I mean, not centrally driven, but some of it looks in in terms of having groups of councillors, you know, quite like the UK. Some of it has executive mayors looking around, observing over the years. We come to the conclusion that actually executive mayors work better so that you'll find that a number of states in Germany are adopting the executive mayor model. Yeah, so it's a very good example. And somehow, you know, this notion that you you can determine from the centre the answer and then the answer is rolled out 
you know, things of immense complexity. It's rolled out and now it's going to work. I mean, it's just fatuous. And the notion that actually learning and learning from each other and experimenting, uh, you know, something else we've talked a lot about, every policy actually in practice is an experiment. So experiment, see how it works, adjust it, and then others can adopt it. Mm. It's very much the scientific method again. It's cropping up this this element of, of humility with regards to what we know and at the same yeah. time, a certain amount of boldness in trying to find a good solution. Incidentally, one of the other things I forgot to mention that's crucial in local government, as it is in national government, is the right to participative and deliberative democracy. So it's not just the we elect an executive mayor and off you go, where you go, and if we don't like you, we won't vote for you next time. There is a right to put an issue through petition on the table and say we need to discuss this park and ride schemes libraries swimming pools you know whatever it might be parks we want to put this issue on the table we want to talk about it discuss it have evidence have opinions have expertise and then we have a referendum locally Mm. on it and we decide yeah that's what we're going to do and hey presto what do you find that there's far greater commitment to that solution and therefore the solution is implemented so much better. Well, that's a good place to start thinking about the next few podcasts, which we're we're moving away from democracy and subsidiarity and into the, I suppose, I mean, roughly into the media to some extent, because this next umbrella is the fourth separation of powers. Essentially, the world can't run on lies. Yeah. Would you like to read out principle 10? That is, uh, yes, we're making good progress. Already, we're on to principle 10. I've worked, keep up. So, a full separation of powers shall be incorporated in every system of government for the independent feedback of results through a thing. I call the resulture. Well, that's something to look forward to for next week. In the meantime, we will have links to that Panorama documentary, for example, and to some good Wikipedia. Actually, there's some interesting stuff on subsidiarity. 